0: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe. This week I can promise you 40 minutes of virtually Brexit-free talk. Why is that? Because everything else was so much weirder. We had Rex Tillerson effectively fired by a tweet. We had the Russian poisoning scandal in the UK. And on a single night, two European Prime Ministers offered their resignation for unrelated reasons. Slovenia's Miro Cera, a recent guest on EU Confidential, offered his over a railway line of all things. And Slovakia's Robert Fico offered his over the protests and drama that has followed the Social Democratic government since the murder of investigative journalist Jan Kusiak and his partner Martina Kuznorova. On this episode, I talk first to Georgi Margvelashvili, the president of Georgia, who was in town for the German Marshall Fund's Brussels Forum, and also Michael O'Leary, the CEO and founder of Ryanair. Then we've got a fun panel with the Brussels Brains Trust. It had us laughing at any rate. Now it's time to hear from Georgi Margvelashvili, the president of Georgia. He's got an interesting background, including a doctorate in philosophy and time spent at the Central European University in Budapest. I caught up with him in the hotel, where many of the visiting heads of state stay when they come to Brussels. It was a very formal setting. We sat on the 25th floor of the building in adjacent formal chairs with the Georgian flag behind us. So, Mr. President, you have had a really high level set of meetings here in Brussels. I think you saw pretty much every president, Federica Mogherini, Jens Stoltenberg at NATO. Maybe if I could start by asking you, and Tusk as well, maybe if I could ask about Jean-Claude Juncker and the state of your engagement with the European Union, because he and you were saying that there should be a new form of bilateral meetings, an upgrade, basically. Can you tell us how that will work?
1: Well, the meetings were great, and seeing Donald was also very important for me because he's a good friend from old days, and we had a great discussion with Juncker. We achieved the new format of the sectoral cooperation, something I believe will be put at an extremely good service to Georgian-EU relationships, because you know we have the association agreement, the standing agreement, but the work that will be conducted uh, with the inclusion of the commissioners and of the Georgian government is going to be a real bulk of much more wider avenue towards reforms and towards the integration. So I am more than happy and satisfied of meeting with Jean-Claude, and I think that this is, this is going forward.
0: And the association agreement, it's still quite new, and I'll explain it to my listeners if maybe they don't understand. It means that you've got the closest relationship of any country who is not in the EU, to the EU. So you'll probably have a closer relationship than the UK, in many respects, as a result of this well, agreement. Well, that's
1: a tricky question. I mean, we still don't know what is the relationship with the UK, and I would spin your attitude and say that we are still looking at what will be the UK-EU format, and I believe it will be extremely close. So. Maybe it's on the opposite. We are trying to accelerate and upgrade. Well, our final goal definitely is mem- full-fledged membership, and we've declared it many times. But till that point, maybe we are even looking at, at more intensive formats, like something UK will be developing within this uh, next year, I guess. One year has passed since yeah, yeah. Brexit. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, we are looking for all the ways and formats to get closer. We believe we are a European nation. We believe we are entitled to becoming a full-fledged political member of the Union.
0: And now that Juncker has made his tour of the Western Balkans and Mm -hmm. the Commission has sort of put out this carrot that maybe they could be members in 2025, how do you see your own timeline for membership? Is that offer to the Western Balkans going to help push you forward or do you see it happening on a different timeline?
1: Well, I believe any kind, any... Any move in direction of expansion is going to be a positive one since it uh, maintains the momentum, maintains the speed. We have not heard any specifics from uh, European capitals on something similar to what you are talking about, the Balkan case. But still, I mean, we've got now a wider avenue something that I told you about, the sexual cooperation, but also the Balkans case is giving us the more hope that the fatigue of EU will be overcome and will be overcome in a very positive manner because overall, at the end of the day, you all, we all have benefited from a bigger Europe. And it brought stability, security, prosperity, and more freedom to about half a billion people in this part of the world. So we have to acknowledge it and applaud to it, and we are strong believers of the process. And
0: you've just come from the German Marshall Fund's Brussels Forum, which is one of the big security events of the year, so seeing as we're all thinking about security at the moment, how are you viewing your relationship with NATO now and, and stepping up the work there?
1: Well, we, our ambition is to become a NATO member, and this is the 16th year since we are in a row for NATO membership. It's the 10th year since NATO has openly declared that Georgia will become a NATO member we are contributors to major operations peacekeeping operations be it EU led, be it NATO led, be it UN led even before. So I mean we believe we are entitled. We are especially diligent when it comes to fulfillment the requirements of the of the alliance. So We are looking at NATO, the the real question is with the NATO leadership, how fast they can make a real move and integrate Georgia, which I believe is not only the Georgian concern, but it is overall a security and stability concern for the Europe at large.
0: Do you think it can happen with an internal driver, like a new NATO Secretary-General when they arrive, or would it have to be something external, like the threat from Russia that would push the membership
2: bid forward?
1: Well, I wouldn't link the issue to the Secretary General, and we are happy with what uh, Secretary General is doing for Georgia, but the external, uh, external threat is an interesting issue that you, you've raised. I wouldn't say even an external threat, but I would put it in another way, acknowledgement of the external threat and readiness to face and comprehend that threat is there that uh, threat has been expressed today at, at the Brussels Forum. There was a question what, to the to the audience and to, to the speakers, like, what do you think Russians are planning or Russians are doing? And uh, uh, I, I said, you know, you don't need any, any intelligence, you don't need any specific research to know what Russians are doing, because we know it from what they are saying. And they have basically, their actions to where their words were uh, for the ongoing two decades I would say maybe a little bit less like maybe since 2000 but they've been outspoken we should accept the fact that they were sincere Mm -hmm. and we should accept the fact that not always we the allies of the Western world are ready to comprehend the truth that we hear from President Putin and what we have heard just several days ago, and what we are hearing as his election campaign, he is uh, basically sort of crafting a new Cold War. And I I hear comments that there is no economic background for that, or there is no military component for that. And I think those are the wrong ways to consider this issue. It's not about economy. It's not about military. It's about the political decisions and political boldness that we have heard. And maybe you need economy, maybe you need military if you are going to launch, launch a war. But Cold War is not an ordinary war, it's a proxy war.
0: And Russia, in fact, has been finding cheaper and cheaper ways of fighting proxy wars <laughs> in recent Russia, years.
1: And believe me, whether those estimates of the new weapons are true or wrong, that has no whatsoever connection with the proxy wars because Russia had enough resources to fight proxy wars long before the presentation was made by the president. So we have to acknowledge what the Cold War is. And in this respect, the attempt of one side to launch an imitation of proxy wars is something that should be heard and is something that should be responded. Because in that case scenario, we should be more, much more fast, organized, and uh, resilient, and we should, we should basically court the countries that had made their pro-Western choice mm-hmm. so that the question marks about uh, the rollback of Russia into these areas is basically worthless. So, I believe that it's not so much about the threat, but about the acknowledgement and the carefully listening to President Putin what he's saying.
0: You made me think of one other area of possible EU-Georgian cooperation, and that's around the new defense cooperation the EU is engaging in, where clearly they're only just getting started down that road, but as a country that is on the, the front lines with Russia who's experienced these territorial incursions, and I'm thinking because the EU, Their defence work will often focus on things like hybrid threats, and they'll look very closely at cyber security and those issues in the next EU budget. Can you imagine getting more involved on the cyber front or the defence cooperation front with Europe? Well, we
1: are explicitly and openly uh, targeting ourselves to the existing and functional alliance, which which is NATO. And NATO proved to be a security shield that is absolutely necessary for our country. Of course, cooperation in any kind of areas and in any kind of organized groups with our Western partners is essential. Cyber also very much the propaganda and strategic communication issues. I mean, we have to be organized in that part and I, I believe that our, our very close co- political cooperation with the Eastern European countries is one of the already existing component for the propaganda warfare which we are having right now in Europe and sometimes even in the U.S. So, I mean, Georgia <laughs> as when it comes to warfare, with uh, uh, Georgia, be it a real warfare um, uh, like in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the Central African Republic, Georgian men and women in uniform have been firm and standing with their brothers in arms to protect the global security. But also, I would say, when it comes to propaganda and undermining and questioning our joint values well, I believe that we are also standing firm and contributing to the truth. So I think we also contribute to the value battle that is spread all over the Europe uh, these days.
0: And one final question on China. That's on a lot of people's minds right now. We see Xi Jinping moving to an even stronger role. Some have called it a, almost dictatorship again. And obviously China's making huge investments. And the one project that everyone can relate to is this One Belt, One Road initiative and the 11 trillion dollars that they've said they'll, they'll pump into that. How do you view those sort of investments in Georgia? and? Will you be engaging in that initiative?
1: Very much so. I mean, when you look at the trans-Eurasian project of One Road, One Belt, you see that it's a global project engaging for the decades to come, economic cooperation, which is going to be really decisive. I mean, it is a project that is a place for east-west trade opportunities, but it's also a project that gives... It meets its and West in Georgia. and Pretty good perspective, I think, that the importance of the project is acknowledged. At least I know it's acknowledged by Russians. I know it's acknowledged by Chinese. I hope it will be more acknowledged by Europeans as well.
0: Mr. President, thank you very much. Thank you. And now we're going from Magvelashvili to O'Leary. That's Georgi Magvelashvili, the president of Georgia. And next is Michael O'Leary, the founder and the CEO of Europe's biggest airline, Ryanair. We caught up with him at an Airlines for Europe summit that took place in Brussels, and it's a little bit of a noisy room. We apologize for that, but it was hard surfaces everywhere you looked, and that's what you deal with sometimes in Brussels, so thanks for bearing with us. Well. Joining us on the EU confidential podcast now is Michael O'Leary, a man who I think we could rightly give the crown King of Aviation
2: to. I don't know if you are wear it, Michael, but thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here talking to Politico. And I think the king of aviation is a bit overstated. Well, the, the king prince. of the king of low fare aviation <laughs> Europe will do fine.
0: Well, that is definitely
2: true. Now you're a pretty passionate
0: guy. What is getting your goat? What is getting you angry in twenty eighteen? I mean, what worries
2: me most, rather than angry, is Brexit, obviously. I think Brexit uh, poses enormous risks to air travel across Europe. Uh, If it goes ahead and there's a hard Brexit next March or at the end of the transition period, there's a real risk that there will be disruption to flights between the UK and Europe, both ways. And over the longer term, I think it's bad generally for the European economy, That there would be a disruption to the supply of British tourists visiting places like Spain, Portugal, Italy and Greece. And vice versa, people travelling to the UK on business. So I hope that the British will change their minds. It has happened before. The Irish voted to down Maastricht and the Nice referendums and had a second vote. We We just made your vote again and again. We keep voting until we get the right answer. And I think ultimately when the British public realised that they were misled by the Brexiteers that leaving Europe will not be good for the UK economy or for their lives and their children's lives. I hope they'll change their minds and change their vote.
0: Now, at the policy level, if that doesn't work out, mm. what can you do or what does the EU need to do to make sure planes aren't uh, grounded, basically? Well,
2: there's two things. One, you have to have a pretty liberal flight rights regime so that you know, essentially what exists at the moment, which is the freedom to fly between the UK and Europe and vice versa, continues. That, I think, is likely to happen. I said there may be a disruption for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but I think flight rights will get resolved. The trickier issue is going to be the ownership restrictions. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, We have these arcane rules that an EU airline must be majority-owned by EU citizens. Once the UK leaves, British citizens will no longer be EU citizens, and so BA's ownership of Iberia and Aer Lingus may get broken up. Mm-hmm. Um, EasyJet's uh, flights within continental Europe from, say, Spain, Portugal to Spain to Italy will stop. Uh, because it's a uk area, it would become a uk airline and i think that's a much trickier challenge and while i'd like to see my competitors grounded ultimately i don't think that's the right thing for either our industry or for our sector so there's two
0: workarounds. Maybe
2: one is you
0: could set up a subsidiary in uh, the UK.
2: No, that won't be that won't be effective. I mean, the problem with subsidiaries is you a, an EU airline won't be allowed to own a UK subsidiary because it'll be owned by an EU airline. In much the same way as an EasyJet's Austrian subsidiary, which will be UK-owned, will not be allowed to fly. And I think the ownership rules are going to be harder because you have Lufthansa and Air France who see the opportunity here to be very tough are pushing for very hard and very strict interpretations of the ownership rules, uh, because it's in their interest to do so, um, and I think that's where the challenge will lie.
0: And are we going to have to get into talks with people
2: like the Competition
0: Commissioner to get around how you can do some of these mergers and change the ownership rules, or is it more political?
2: I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I struggle to see why or how the European Union will change the ownership rules to facilitate the British when the British have voted to leave.
0: We're talking at the Airlines for Europe annual conference. It's yep. a reasonably new organization. Uh, we heard at a gala dinner that we were both at that you know, the industry has severe annoyances around things like excessive airport charges in yep. view, inefficient border controls, uh, too much uh, striking t- when it comes to air traffic control, potentially awesome. pilots. You had a bit of that issue last year wanted to get your take on are those the big issues facing the industry or are we also looking at major dramas like how to cope with climate change and the fuel situation and, you know, if drones are coming in, why do you need pilots anyway in the future? Is it going to be you versus Google and Facebook in the airline industry in 20 years?
2: I mean, I think 20 years is probably too far out for predictions, but if you take the next 10 years... I mean, the challenge and the fact raised rightly raised by today at the A4E conference is that we can significantly lower the cost of air travel if we remove these inefficiencies. Taxation on air travel, you know, is a stupid idea when actually if they abolish the taxes on air travel, there'll be far more people travelling and it would generate much more tax revenue for European governments, particularly those governments like in Spain, Italy, Greece, where they have high youth unemployment. Tourism is the one sector that creates entry-level jobs for young people. We all got our first job in hotels and bars and restaurants and yet they have 50% youth unemployment and they tax the very industry that would bring the visitors that would create jobs for those young people. So reducing these taxes, eliminating the impact of air traffic control strikes, we don't want to take away the people's right to strike but just because French air traffic controllers go on strike doesn't mean that overflights going from Germany to Spain that are going nowhere near France should be cancelled they shouldn't be they should and I think we're developing solutions that has two levels of airspace over Europe the lower level which will be controlled by the national interests and may be affected by strikes but the upper level which is would be the overflights would be protected that would eliminate 50 to 60 percent of all air traffic control delays and cancellations on an annual basis. it would we'll make that a huge difference in people's holidays. Yeah. So do the, we need to hire some more people in Euro control to make it no. happen? What's the mechanism for that? We need to change the restriction that allows you know, national sovereignty over all of the airspace over EU countries. We need to split it so that at a level below 30,000 feet it's a national competence, but above 30,000 feet it's an EU-wide competence. And if there's a strike in France, for example, the British or the Spanish or the Italians or the Irish can operate the overflights quite readily, the technology is there. It doesn't require any more people. The people are already there, the technology is there. So let's find workarounds that prevents people's flights being disrupted by repeated strikes by French air traffic controllers.
0: Now, speaking of uh, workarounds and strikes, You had some drama last year around Mm. that in Ryanair. That was a a first for you, I think, or at least on any significant scale. Sure. What's the state of play there? How are are you making sure everyone's gonna get their flights? Yeah, we
2: recognize, I mean, we started the process of recognizing unions in December. We made much more progress, actually, frankly, than I thought we would have. Today, at the end of January, we had recognized the British Pilots Union, Mm Balpa. I think by the end of March, we will have agreements in place with the Italian Pilots Union, with the Spanish Pilots Union. So we're dealing with the biggest markets first. Now, we still have a number of other deals to be done, but in Belgium this week, for example, the vast majority of our pilots in Charleroi and in Zaventem voted in favour of up to 20% pay increases.
0: Now, personal question from me. Yeah. I take your flights um, quite often. Thank above. you very much. I'm going getting on one Friday morning, actually, from Charleroi Airport. Um, and I love travelling also from the main airports, not just the, the more distant ones. And it seems like you've got a bit of a strategy there of moving into more of those main airports. Is, is that the, the long-term vision? Is it going to keep happening? I mean, no, the
2: long-term vision was we keep growing in And um, This year we'll carry over 6 million passengers in Charleroi, which, remember, was an airport which 20 years ago had no traffic at all. Now it's one of the great... I think if it's not, it's probably Charleroi is now the largest employment creator in the whole Walloon region. But Zaventem has seen the success of Charleroi has seen that it's not growing because Brussels Airlines, when owned by Lufthansa, is unlikely to develop lots of new flights from Belgium, and has recognised they actually need to work with a low-cost carrier like Ryanair. Now, if there's any market
0: you could expand into, what, what's the holy
2: grail? Is it the United States? Is it taking over the world? No, I mean, what I think do? more... I mean, funnily enough, the, the, the decision last December to recognise unions has meant that now new markets are opening up to us that were previously closed. We're now looking at opening bases in France and in Scandinavia. Previously, we had avoided those countries because it would have meant automatically granting unionisation. Well, now that we've decided to voluntarily get into unionisation, now we can grow and open up bases in France and open up bases in Scandinavia, while still growing here in Belgium and in many other countries all over Europe.
0: Let's finish on a couple of not quite personal questions, but yes. I'd love to get to know the man or the woman behind the, the interview. She's um, the man, I hope. <laughs> I don't ask any questions. Obi- I don't Obi- make any the Obi- 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 woman. <laughs> <laughs> Obi- man. Uh, what's your favourite airport? And you can't
2: say Dublin. No Actually, funny enough, my favourite airport would be Wroclaw in Poland. Uh, and the reason is because they built a new terminal there at a cost of just 26 million, capable of handling about six or eight million passengers. Can we send and them to Berlin?
0: I think Berlin we should send them, them
2: to Berlin. I mean, Berlin, they've wasted billions building an airport terminal that was finished about four years ago and still hasn't been opened. So, any airport where You know, the airports are doing something creative, building new efficient facilities that are not big marble, complicated marble palaces that are easy for customers to get through. Those are my favourite airports. Bergamo in Italy, for example, has done a remarkable job. Again, like Charlois, it was empty 20 years ago. Now it it is the fastest growing airport in Italy. It's providing real challenges to Malpensa and Lanate. Um, and it's where we're now connecting passengers through Bergamo on Ryanair services. And it's a, really a well run, it's a super airport, but one that's growing very rapidly.
0: I'm going to second you on that. I used to turn up there in 2003 when it really was a shed, basically. Yeah. And it's very different now. And the final question when you can't fly Ryanair, yeah. it can be on your bike, it can be in your car, it can be on some other airline. How do you like to get around?
2: I, I like to run when I'm not uh, flying you know, A, I don't want to fly with any airline other than Ryanair because we would get you there on time more often than any other airline you know when I go long haul I fly whoever's cheapest so I don't really care which airline it is but other than that my favourite activity is running I wish I could do more of it but as I get older and older I run slower and over less distances than I used to
0: well as long as you keep moving that's the most important thing. that's true Michael O'Leary well, thank you for joining us thank you very
2: much and best wishes to all Politico and all your listeners thank you
0: Well, that was Michael O'Leary, the founder and CEO of Ryanair. And now we're back with the Brussels Brains Trust. Lena Rabarus, hello.
3: Hello, Ryan.
0: Alva Finn, hi.
3: Good morning on this very sunny day.
0: Yes, I'm loving this. It almost feels like we're waking up on the beach in Australia. Almost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a week of EU WTF moments. And uh, I think... A real serious WTF moment that we probably should talk about is the French National Front's latest attempt at whitewashing, excuse the pun. Uh, Marine Le Pen wants to rebrand herself and her party, and I'm going to call BS on that. The Front National now wants to be called National Rally, which happens to be the name of a pro-Nazi faction in wartime French politics. She also immediately ran into trouble because there's already a party using that name and they plan to take her to court. And Steve Bannon came as the guest of honour to the party convention in Lille and he gave a speech that's now best remembered for the line let them call you racist, wear it like a badge of honour. France 24 reported he got a standing ovation for that one. So, panellists, will the National Front get away with this rebranding or are they on the way down?
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be a rebranding of getting rid of their kind of controversial, uh, there's a lot of stigma around the Front National. So, I mean, it's a rebranding in the total opposite direction, which seems like an embrace of everything nationalistic, the xenophobic, racist Undertones and sometimes outright things that they've said. And, I mean, did you see the symbol that will be adopted? It looks like a Nazi flag.
0: Well, that's where I wasn't sure, where I went back and looked at those tweets, and I was like, I I think they're just saying that was actually the symbol Ah. of the party in the wartime. But I read it that way as well, that they were adopting that logo. So maybe we can't ascribe all uh, Nazi links to the new national rally. Lena, are they going to get away with this?
4: I don't think so. You know, um, this party in particular existed for the for a long time and extremist parties will always be part of, of politics. Rebranding from a PR reputation management perspective is the worst thing you can do when you really have a fundamental problem in their policies, in their functions, the scandals, the corruptions. Let's not forget how many corruption cases uh, Madame Le Pen had and, and her party. Her father didn't ever make it and I don't think she will make it. Yet, they would Exist. How we can stop them is by giving more citizen-based policies from the traditional or the emer- the new emerging political parties, like President Macron party. It is really funny to see that getting Mr. Bannon on on this rally. It's just like. Um, you know that uh, you're going down to hell and you just go running uh, uh, faster you know i see and it, it was so. it was yesterday's man
0: not tomorrow's man that's what i thought i was like yeah it's exciting and weird that you have this english-speaking man at a french nationalist yeah. rally but yeah, he's not really on the way up, is he?
4: But you, you can't blame as well. I, I, I don't. I still believe in the French people, and I will always believe in the French fundamentals and values. We still have hopes, and we just need to avoir l'espoir uh, and the confidence in, in the French.
0: Indeed, but don't yeah. let Lena Nero guillotine. I'm starting to get worried, Alva.
3: <laughs> I just think that it, for a French audience, having someone like Steve Bannon, who's probably one of the worst dressed. <laughs> men in politics and an american who is out like openly racist coming to one of your rallies and saying things like that you know i think it was one of the reasons why they didn't win even though a lot of people thought you know this was going to be their time post trump the french people came back out against this type of racism and then aligning yourself with the kind of white supremacy Alt right that Steve Bannon represents in the US, and just going for a, a person from the US in general, I think it's a terrible idea. You know, you're, and also he was fired from the White House, so you just wonder
4: what exactly they were thinking. And as you mentioned, he's not uh, he's not elegant at all. Hmm? <laughs>
0: no, well, uh, let's move on to something positive. It's time for a round of EU thumbs up. Uh, I thought this week, instead of trying to choose one, maybe I will make each of us nominate one person. For me, it's got to be the European Parliament doing its job and putting the Commission's feet in the fire over Martin Selmayer's uncompetitive elevation to Commission Secretary-General. They might not have had the power to get rid of the man, but they did look like a real Parliament this week. Alva, what's your nomination?
3: I wanted to nominate this new blacklist. Well, it's not new, but they started in December. This EU blacklisting of (laughs) of countries who are not adhering to EU tax avoidance rules so they've added a few more people onto this blacklist or not people countries <laughs> <laughs> um, was lazy. They've, they've added a few more countries onto this blacklist and then also they have this gray list now for people who they or not people countries
0: i suppose they are peoples though and <laughs>
3: um,
0: what countries at the end of the day are groups of people yeah. who may or may not pay their taxes
3: so countries that need to change some of their laws in order to come into in, in line with EU policies. It is a controversial list in some ways because a lot of people think it's politicised, but it is also doing something in the wake of the Panama scandals. A lot of the places are in and around the Caribbean, known tax havens, but... Notably,
0: often British territories or <laughs> members of the Commonwealth. I wonder mm-hmm. if there is a Brexit angle to this sudden enthusiasm for blacklists
3: uh yeah i mean maybe there is and i think a lot of things that the eu does around things like this are political of course and then we had pierre moscovici talking this week about how he we can't just do things like that outside europe we also have to be looking in-house and he literally called out a lot of eu member states like luxembourg ireland etc but
4: my worry now where will i retire if bahamas is on the list Well, if they come into conformity... So,
0: after those taxing times, Lena, what's your thumbs up?
4: Ah, my thumbs up. As you know, last night, uh, Stephen Hawking passed away. And if I may read something, it's a little bit uh, tacky for this morning, but it's, it's really, it touched my heart. He said, remember to look up the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and about what makes the universe exist. Be curious, and however difficult life may seem, There is always something you can do and succeed at. It matters that you don't just give up. It is like for somebody with all his health issues and with all the challenges and with all his uh, family constraints. He just made it and he continued struggling with life and inspiring us.
0: It's true. Stephen Hawking can do it. Any of us can do it.
4: Yeah, except we're not all geniuses. (laughs) I wish. Uh,
3: Not like Stephen Hawking. Yeah, but I think we've lost a a good, he's also, he was a political commentator and a social commentator. He came out against, for
0: example, Brexit. He had very strong warnings about unethical robotics, Mm -hmm. where artificial intelligence can go if people aren't applying thoughtful principles to its development Uh,
3: yeah no but I think we have lost a very valuable voice because he did sound the alarm for a lot of future things but he also made us think about the future in positive ways as well so yeah I'm sad to hear of his passing but a thumbs up to his life
0: Well, now it's time for our MEP of the Week moment. Let's bring out the box of wonders, our big blue box containing the names of all the members of the European Parliament to see if we can actually recognise any of them and select the MEP of the Week. Dive on in.
3: Uh, so I have Enrique Guerrero Salom he is a Spanish MEP and he's from the S&D and I actually do know who he is because I've recently been working on a report in the parliament basically he works a lot with the development committee on issues around aid and things like that so yeah that's where I know him from anybody else? no I don't
4: know him
0: never heard of him before
4: mm-hmm.
0: let's go for another one
4: okay I have a lady Diane James Ooh. from United Kingdom and she's a non attached member.
0: She was a former UKIP member. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. after she either achieved or failed to achieve leadership of the party, she exited the party. Yeah, she's yeah.
3: quite famous.
0: And she asked a question at my very first playbook interview with Franz Timmermans. Oh. Yes. About migration. Okay. Can't say she ever crossed my path apart from that. Maybe we'll try one more. <laughs> We're getting closer, like Somebody knew each of the first two names out of the hat. Mm, yeah. Then we've got Catalin Soren Ivan. He is from Romania and from the Social Democrats. Well, I can't say I've come across Catalin.
3: He looks familiar. I don't know what he does, so that's... No, neither do
0: I. Okay. <coughs> Let's keep going.
3: I have Jonas Fernandez. He's from the S&D, from Spain, and he looks very young, but I have never encountered him.
4: Today is the Spanish with you. Yeah. yeah. We must be getting to the
3: Spanish no, I part
4: of the I
0: box. No, don't know Mr. Juanesh. No, can't say I've come across Mr. Fernandez. Okay. <laughs> I've got Patricia Lalonde. She is a liberal from the Union of Democrats and Independents in France.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: No. No, not me either.
4: Pas de tout. Jiri Mastalkala. Mastalka. Mastalka from Czech Republic and uh, from the Nordic Green Left. Anybody knows Mr. Kala? Mm, no. Yeah. Um, okay, so I've got
3: Othmar Karas from Austria. He is in the EPP. I
4: don't know him, but how about you? Uh, you I seeing? know
0: him as a serial contender for the EPP leadership.
4: Mm, no, I don't know him, <laughs> but now I know something of him. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Morten Schmidt from European Conservatives and Reformist Group from Denmark.
0: He is from the Danish People's Party. Have you heard of him, Alba? Yes, yes. Morten has been involved in several funding scandals down at the European Parliament that Politico has reported on, as well as being quite a controversial figure in the Danish media. Um, but they can't seem to keep their fingers out of the till, I think, is the general <laughs> thing.
3: Yeah, I definitely know him as someone who's, who's very, very controversial and kind of says things to rile people up, this kind of alt-right, like saying really explosive, inflammatory things to annoy liberal snowflakes and things like this, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's
0: so Morton is a controversial figure. He both won a record number of personal votes for a Dane in the 2014 European election. So he was the first elected MEP from that country. But he is definitely not shy about causing trouble. And he stands accused of directing funds for information, you know, kind of like awareness raising activities, Mm -hmm. into party political activities. And so that is why we put him on the list of MEPs who matter. Mm.
4: Was he once on the TV and he had like this very strong interview on the Danish...
0: I think he was often on the tv but yeah. I get confused between what was on Borgen the tv show and what was in real life in Denmark now
3: <laughs> but I think he's definitely one of those people that you know when the news wants someone who is going to say political commentary that is very alt-right almost they get him on and he just says things that are what most people wouldn't say he's willing to say things that other people wouldn't I think the people that we know from the european parliament a lot it's the it's the faces of the parliamentary political parties but it's also people from the ecr the reformist conservative eurosceptic group and i do think that is because they get themselves in the news more we know for example nigel farage Mm -hmm. uh, had one of the the smallest parties in the whole of the the european parliament but yet got so much airtime So I just wanted to say that, that I think it's kind of an indictment on the European Parliament that these people who are Eurosceptic against Europe are sometimes the most prominent people um, in the European Parliament. They're just
0: better communicators a lot of the time. They have a clearer message about what it is that they want from their role in the Parliament.
3: And the media has a role also in, in covering them because they say things that are clickbait.
0: Yeah, but I will defend it. Like, if you say something interesting that is changing Europe, I'll put you in Politico.
4: Or challenging Europe.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just think other MEPs need to get better at explaining themselves. Guy Verhofstadt has no problems getting coverage because he is very good at explaining what his vision First of all, he's put thought into his vision uh, and he articulates it in very clear terms. Mm-hmm. There mean? should be more pro-European MEPs that operate at the same level of communications.
4: But does every MEP has a vision?
0: Well, I'm not sure we're going to be able to answer that question on this episode of EU Confidential. <laughs> That's all we've got time for. Thank you, panellists, for joining us once again.
4: Thank
3: you. Same time next week.
0: And we'd love for you to officially become part of the EU Confidential community. And you can do that by signing up at politico.eu forward slash registration. You can check the box to get EU Confidential there, which means that you get a weekly newsletter, including this podcast, and invitations to any podcast-related events that we might be holding. And of course, EU Confidential is a team effort, we can't do it without Michelle Stoddart, Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Lin and Antonio Fernandez.